Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. What exactly is genuine righteousness according to Jesus? Well, on today's program, we'll examine this topic with Dr. Neufeld as we continue our current five-week series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. I'm reading Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you try to follow the Sermon on the Mount, I mean follow its progression of thought. You remember that Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. There are a series of statements that begin with the word blessed. Each of these statements tell us or give us a character description of the man or woman who is favored by God and therefore filled with joy and are in the best position imaginable. We began by observing that these statements don't tell us how to get into the kingdom of heaven or how to be blessed. Rather, they give us a description of the person who has already inherited the kingdom of heaven. This is what the citizens of the kingdom are like. They are poor in spirit and so forth. And then Jesus tells us that those who are genuinely saved, the citizens of the kingdom, the blessed ones, well, they are the light of the world and they're the salt of the earth without them. The earth is decaying and in darkness. They are a blessing to a doomed kingdom of men. And now for the first time, he gives a statement about how to get into the kingdom. And when the crowd heard Jesus say what he did in verse 20, that just to get into the kingdom, their righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, well, I wonder if some of the crowd gasped and others simply sat there stunned thinking, well, if that's the case, I can never get in. See, our problem today is that when we think of the Pharisees, we know that they're hypocrites, and so it wouldn't be that hard to be better than them. But that's not what the crowd would have thought. The Pharisees were respected as those who were closer to God than most, and here's why. After Israel returned from exile to the Promised Land, beginning in the year 537 B.C., Ezra the priest had taught them that the reason that they had gone into exile in the first place, I mean, the reason they suffered so terribly as a nation is because they had forgotten the law of God. And so Ezra leads a revival and he leads Israel to return to the law. Never again would they worship idols. Never again would they overtly rebel against God's command. And then the hundreds of years following Ezra, in order to ensure Israel's faithfulness to the law, a group of Bible teachers following in the tradition of Ezra took it upon themselves to be teachers in Israel. By the second century BC, we find that those Bible teachers were called the Hasidim, or God's loyal ones. And out of that group came the Pharisees, also known as the separated ones, men who separated themselves from the world in order to study and to teach the law of the God of Israel. Now in time, these men became the most respected Bible teachers of their day. And by the time of Jesus, they were known to have stressed four things. First, the holiness of God. Second, that Israel was a people chosen uniquely by God. Third, the absolute authority of the scripture. And fourth, the ethical demands to be faithful to the law of God or the Torah. 
And Jesus, in his greatest sermon ever preached, said that these men, God's loyal separated ones, as they called themselves, these men who many respected for their disciplined study and obedience to Scripture, were not righteous enough to get into the kingdom. Indeed, he said to that crowd that day, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never get in. You'll never be blessed. You won't be saved. Now, I know that many of us reading this 2,000 years later are likely to say, well, that's true. I mean, you can't get to heaven by keeping the law. You get there by faith. Faith that Christ died for our sins. It's by faith alone that we're saved. We're not saved by works. Well, that's true. But here's what's also true. The Pharisees, with their demand for moral purity, their, their insistence on law keeping, were completely blind to their own sin, and they had become hypocrites. Since their study of the law focused only on its external demands and not on internal transformation in their own hearts, they became arrogant rather than humble. They were definitely not poor in spirit. Indeed, they counted themselves morally superior to others, so they looked down on tax collectors and and prostitutes and Samaritans and Gentiles and, and, and even the Sadducees. They didn't weep over their own sin, and they certainly weren't the light of the world. No man or woman of the kingdom glories in their own righteousness. Rather, they acknowledge their sin and plead with God for mercy, and they begin to count on grace, but not so with these men. And from this, many of us 2,000 years later assume, however, that no ethical demands are required of us. Since I'm not saved by the law, then at least, so at least many of us think, that it's not imperative to be obedient to the commands of God. You know, as a pastor for more than 30 years, I've heard people living in rank disobedience to God and then defend themselves by saying, well, if you demand obedience, well, that's legalism. And then didn't Jesus say that we weren't to judge one another? And so they washed their hands of the need to obey. See, the fact is that there are many today who say they are believers in Christ, but they are definitely not followers of Christ. And the reason for that is their confident proclamation that Christ has released them from the law. All I need to do is believe. It has nothing to do with works. And all of this can be but a half-truth. You know, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, who called this cheap grace. You know, in his day, he thought the German Lutheran Church had reduced the Christian faith to a doctrinal formula alone. And thus, the Christian life had become disconnected from the life of Christ. He believed that this is what allowed the German Lutheran Church to embrace Hitler. His critique must be heard today. Cheap grace allows us to become very comfortable with personal and global evil, in which we no longer hunger and thirst after righteousness. Here's what Bonhoeffer said, and I quote him. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. You know, he meant that if we only believe in grace as a doctrine alone, that is, if we only confess, well, that Christ died for me even while, that's a great and a precious truth. But if we do not experience the cross in that confession as a life-transforming encounter with Jesus, we have nothing. We must find the divine command that we surrender our lives and our lifestyle choices to Jesus, and that Christ's grace, well, it's not cheap at all. It cost Christ his life, and it will cost me my life as well. 
So we notice that verse 20 would have surprised the crowd, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now it's time for us to be surprised. Look again at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let's take this one step at a time. First, when Jesus uses the phrase, the law and the prophets, it's a technical phrase. It's a Jewish way of saying the Old Testament. The words the law refers to the first five books, those books written by Moses, and the prophets refer to the other 34 books of the Old Testament. So Jesus is speaking about everything from Genesis to Malachi. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament, he says, and to some that's shocking stuff indeed. Many of us think that's precisely what Jesus came to do. Do away with those nasty laws and commandments and substitute it with free grace. Shocking words if you take the time to think about it. And secondly, verse 17 is the interpretive tool for understanding the rest of the sermon. Over and over again, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And what he's doing is comparing his teaching on the Old Testament with the teaching of the Pharisees on the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus and the Pharisees interpret the Old Testament very, very differently. That's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Not that one rejects the Old Testament and the other accepts it. No, no. They both proclaimed its authority, but they understood it so differently, so differently, that you might think they were reading from a different book. But what's the difference between them? Well, for starters, when the Pharisees studied Moses, the law, the first five books, they discovered that there were 613 separate commands. 248 were positive and 365 were negative. Then each command had to be separately understood, but that wasn't enough. What was needed was a separate instruction manual as to how to keep each one of the commands. They called this building a hedge around the law. See, the law, they said, was like a garden, and so you have to put a fence around it to keep it from being destroyed. And so the fence or the hedge were the traditions and traditions as to how to keep the law. And once having kept the law in this fashion, you would be proved to be a righteous man or a woman. And Jesus profoundly disagreed. Well, more when we come back. Most of us have generally understood that the Pharisees stood for an extremely legalistic view of keeping God's commands. In fact, to them, this was the ticket to obtaining righteousness. But here we begin to discover how and why Jesus strongly opposed their misinterpretation of the law and what the law truly stands for, not only then, but in our faith today. After the break, we'll continue to unpack the proper distinction between law and grace with Dr. John Newfound. In these challenging days, there are so many voices calling for our attention, but nothing is more essential than allowing our Bibles to speak to our lives and to be the compass that guides our choices and decisions. Psalm 119.105 reminds us, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Throughout 2021, we pray that the Bible would be your compass, guiding, encouraging, even challenging you in your walk with Jesus. Every resource we create and share with you is designed for that purpose, a trusted guide for your daily walk with Jesus. So tune in every weekday on this station or visit us online to discover all the different opportunities to access all the free Bible teaching resources available to you. So for more information, visit us at backtothebible.com. 
www.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Most of us are familiar with the Pharisaical traditions around the Sabbath. They told you how far you were permitted to travel on the Sabbath, and then the question was asked, travel from where? And the answer was, from home. But what constitutes home? And the answer is, home is where your food is. But what if your food was in a different place than your principal residence? Well, on and on the discussions went. Each tradition added on to the law, formed a kind of a fence around the law to ensure you never broke it. So keep the traditions and you're going to keep the law and you will be proved to be righteous. That's what the Pharisees taught. And what's more, each of the 613 commands needed separate traditions. But Jesus cut right through that. He noticed that all of these traditions dealt, in his words, with the outside of the cup, while inside the cup it was filthy and vile. That's why as the sermon goes on, he will address the man who has kept the sixth commandment. He's never murdered, but he hides anger at his heart in a secret place. And that man, says Jesus, even while he keeps all the traditions, is a lawbreaker. Or the man who's kept the seventh command and has never committed adultery and yet plays a movie in his heart in which every kind of sexual impurity lives. Jesus will demand the inside of the cup while the Pharisees only care for the outside. But here's the temptation. Noticing how wrong the Pharisees were, it's quite easy to throw the rule book away. I mean, who needs the Ten Commandments? After all, we are not under law. We're under grace. Aren't we delivered from the law and aren't we under grace? And the answer is yes. But when I say that, I mean that I'm delivered from the law as a means of obtaining grace. Law-keeping does not earn grace. Grace can't be earned. Grace is free. Grace is a gift. Grace is undeserved. You can't earn forgiveness. It's given as a gift from God. But what of cheap grace? I remember speaking with a woman who was quite sexually immoral, and here's what she told me. She said, every man I've ever gone to bed with, I've told that guy about my faith in Jesus. Well, that's definitely not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So let's talk about what Jesus actually meant when he spoke of the relationship between the believer and the law. First, Jesus held the highest possible view of Scripture. In verse 18, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The word iota speaks of the Hebrew letter yod, which, according to its size, is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The word dot refers to the tiniest stroke that makes up a letter. Jesus believed that the Old Testament had to be trusted down to the smallest mark on a piece of paper. Today, we call that view inerrancy. That simply means that whatever the Bible affirms to be true is, in fact, true. Jesus saw the Old Testament that way. Let me explain. Although the Bible's purpose is not to give us general scientific principles or the flow of human history, yet whenever the Bible speaks of science or history, everything it says is true. Whenever it gives a command, we can be sure that that command comes from God. When it offers a promise, we can rest assured that this is a promise that comes from God. But don't people interpret the Bible differently? Well, yeah, they do. That's the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is making a claim. As Son of God, He claims authority to interpret the Bible for us. He claims to be the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. 
And that's the point he will make when he says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He's the Son of God. And as God came in flesh, who knows Scripture, both what it says and what it means. But there's more than that to Jesus' claim. Notice he doesn't say, I've not come to abolish the law, but to keep the law. No, no. Jesus does something much greater than simply explaining the law. Instead, he says he has come to fulfill the law. Now, we might say that Jesus adds a transcending depth to Scripture. There's something about the Old Testament you're never going to get until you read it in the light of Jesus. He fulfills Scripture in the sense that all Scripture points to him. You see, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is not to be carried out today because Jesus, by his one sacrifice, has once for all put an end to that. And yet, the meaning of the sacrificial system is alive in the life and in the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, the same could also be said about uh, the Old Testament history of Israel, where Jesus as king perfectly fulfills the longing of Israel. Old Testament wisdom literature, speaking of how to live well in God's presence, was lived out in the life of Jesus. Jesus, you see, is the embodiment of Scripture, and we can't know it well without knowing him. You see, here's what I do know. Jesus passionately fulfilled Scripture. You can't love Jesus and ignore the Bible. Of course, we know that we're not to sacrifice sheep and goats, and we don't keep the Sabbath in the Jewish way. We don't require circumcision of our newborn boys. You see, in the light of Jesus, we don't require certain aspects of the law because Jesus fulfilled them in the unique ministry that he did. But there is more. Were it not for the Old Testament, we wouldn't understand Jesus. I mean, how would we understand the cross unless there had been more than a thousand years of temple sacrifices? See, in Jesus, a depth of understanding is given to the scriptures that eventually lead to the cross, to a realization of our own sin, to the heartbreaking reality that God is righteous and we're not. Indeed, we are by nature objects of wrath, and Christ speaks of grace and mercy and forgiveness and transformation, everything that the Old Testament is leading towards. But Jesus is not done. He's coming back to the commands of Scripture and the question of righteousness. Must we keep the commands of God? Yes or no? No more fancy theology, just answer the question. So let's read verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees divided the commands into two categories. Some were called the light and the others were called the heavy commands. Light commands, they taught, dealt with things like tithing. And heavy commands dealt with things like idolatry and murder. And Jesus seems to affirm this designation. He does so in Matthew 23, verse 23, where he compared tithing the light commands to the heavy ones, doing justice and practicing mercy and and faithfulness and so forth. And Jesus is saying so that we understand him clearly, since all scriptures inspired by God, everything down to the least stroke of the pen is all important. Don't relax even the light commands. But you'll have to listen to him and not to the Pharisees if you want to know how to keep the commands. As we continue this sermon, Jesus will explain that keeping the moral commands of the law is not about earning grace, but it's about experiencing inner transformation. And so as we go through Jesus' sermon, he's going to help us out in what obedience to the law genuinely entails. First, he's going to help us out, for instance, with the sixth command 
where it says, do not murder, and he will discuss anger that rises in our heart. Then the seventh command regarding adultery and the natural inclination in our hearts to prefer adultery. And then he moves to a very divisive issue in his day, the Old Testament teaching regarding divorce and so forth. In each case, he distinguishes himself from the Pharisees. They, by building a hedge around the law, interpret the Old Testament law through the lens of external conformity to the law, observable outside obedience. He, on the other hand, will use the law to describe how it is that God is at work, first of all, in highlighting what's going on in our hearts, and then the kind of transformation that is required. And when we read the commands, it will break our hearts, and we will recognize how spiritually poor we actually are. But when we listen to His grace, we will trust Him and require that a transformation of grace should happen. And so Jesus will give us no cheap grace, but it will be grace. And His grace will transform, for it is the grace that will cost us everything that we have. John, long hair, short hair, the types of clothing we wear. You know, a lot of things mentioned in the Old Testament that we've got to wonder, you know, do we need to observe those things or not? So how do we know which ones to obey and which ones not to? You know, uh, there have been times that I've taken whole Bible studies through this very topic, and uh, it's very difficult uh, on, in a, just a brief nutshell to put all of it together, but we do know that there are some commands that were given specifically to the national life of Israel, and they relate to, you know, her relationship to the cultures around them and, and how to remain separate. The easy answer to your question is that the New Testament on numerous occasions points us to certain Old Testament laws and affirms that they are for all time and for the Gentiles as well. So allow the New Testament to guide us in this, and the New Testament will certainly help us through that. Uh, do what the New Testament tells you to do and do it how the New Testament interprets the Old. What a fascinating and important study today and how we should understand the purpose and application of God's law to our own faith. It's so important for us to get this right, lest we fall into the categories of legalism, also known as works-based righteousness, or this notion of cheap grace. I think this statement that keeping the moral commands of the law is ultimately about an inner transformation is the key to knowing what Jesus is saying. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld addresses Jesus' teaching on specific laws, starting with murder— and reconciliation in the greatest sermon ever preached. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As we enter a new year, we want to begin by expressing a sincere thank you to all those who so graciously supported Back to the Bible Canada's year-end ministry campaign. Your gift in December was critical to launching the ministry into the new year, sustaining our Bible teaching resources, and providing a springboard for new and innovative opportunities. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, thank you. What you do is essential to the mission of this organization. As we enter a new year, please continue to pray for this ministry. And if Back to the Bible Canada is an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and you believe in the mission of Bible teaching, 
please consider continuing your financial support or becoming a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.